John chapter 20, in our study of the book of John. If some of you are here for the first time, we've been uh, preaching through the gospel of John for almost a year, and uh, we'll be finishing that up in a couple of weeks, but uh, just going through the book of the gospel according to John, and if you're uh, interested, you could go back online and listen to any messages uh, from the past. But this morning in John chapter 20, the title of this morning's message that we're going to look at today is Learning, Learning Faith from Doubting Thomas. We know about Doubting Thomas. He's a, a Doubting Thomas, somebody might say, and that really goes back to the Thomas of Scripture, of Thomas and the passage that we'll look at in just a moment. But the Gospel of John is a book or a, a, a letter, if you will, written by the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, and he writes it with an uh, intentionality that those who would read it would come to the knowledge of who Jesus is, and consequently, by coming to the knowledge of who Jesus is, that they would have faith in Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as Son of God. Scripture that actually is a part of this chapter uh, that we've looked at most weeks because it really tells us at the latter end of John's book the theme of what this book is about is in John 20, verse 31, where John says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He doesn't want you just to have knowledge, but He wants that knowledge to transform itself into belief and change in your life. I've said many times that believers need to believe. The faithful need faith. That uh, there's not anybody who's been a believer for one hour that at some measure in their life as a Christian has not struggled with doubt, has not struggled with questions about the veracity of the goodness of God or uh, suffering or a host of many things, oftentimes things that are affecting and uh, impacting our life. And sometimes we may have said this or we may have a friend who said it, and I believe they meant well, where they would just say, well, just have faith. Yeah, okay, but I need, I don't need a little, little, uh, a little slogan here. Uh, sometimes I need you to show me how do I have faith in this situation? How do I navigate as a faithful one? I'm talking as a believer. Thomas was a believer. How do I have faith in the midst of this challenge or this storm? Um, you know, when you're going through a disaster and you're personal life, your health, your marriage, uh, family situation, the job uncertainty. Uh, you know, it's like telling somebody with a broken arm and they're laying there in the street and their armor's broken and you bend down and tell them, just don't hurt. <laughs> and uh, with your good arm, you grab them by the neck. No. Uh, so we don't need somebody just to tell us to just have faith. We need we need encouragement on how to have faith. And so this morning, we're going to look in this as we continue in John, and we're going to look in the, the passage here that zeroes in on Thomas of the chapter that we began 
Last week, Jesus, this was the resurrection of Jesus, and this is post-resurrection event following the resurrection. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to John 20, and we're going to look at read together just for the sake of continuity, verses 18 through 29, a little longer, but the narrative is important for us to kind of get the flow of the situation, and then we'll come back to it. But John chapter 20... It'll be on the screen as well, but I encourage you to follow in your, your Bible, uh, however you have it, but uh, to be a part. Also, in your bulletin, there's a little blue sheet, a listener's guide that's uh, there to help you get more out of the message, to learn and not just be a, a stargazer, but to actually gaze at Scripture and learn what's being said. So take advantage of the time that you're here to listen and learn from God's Word and uh, some tools to help you follow. John 20, beginning at verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, and we talked about her encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And if you look at other passages, they, one of the gospel writers parallel this, think that she's nuts, uh, but they don't, John doesn't say that. Verse 19, and then the same day at evening, this is in the evening, the same uh, first day of the week, uh, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Remember, they were in fear that they would be arrested uh, and, and taken and crucified or at least killed or put in jail. And Jesus resurrected now. Jesus, here they are, locked up. Assembled together, fearful, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Let me just make a little note. It's not what I have notes, but it's just something to point out here. And I mentioned things like this last week with the resurrection. That some people, again, want to dismiss the resurrection accounts because they say, Well, those disciples and Mary were so emotionally intent in wanting to see Jesus that they kind of hallucinated, that they willed it to happen. But read this like forensic, you know, like you're a CSI, because why were they assembled? They were scared, scared to death. They weren't thinking, they weren't imagining Jesus was alive. They were scared. They shut the door and it was locked. So they were predisposed uh, for this uh, Jesus, they weren't expecting to see the resurrected Jesus, all right? So just make sure you see that there. And Jesus came into their midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, somebody asked me about this on Wednesday in our teaching of the Holy Spirit. This obviously is different than the fullness of the Spirit that comes in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but yet, there's something going on here and, and anticipating or maybe a preview of coming attractions. But the full measure of the filling of the Spirit didn't come till Acts chapter 2. But nevertheless, it says Jesus breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Verse 24, now Thomas, say Thomas. He's called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. He slept in at church that night. No, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was doing, so don't don't feel guilty. Verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, He showed up late. We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. I mean, a whole uh, week and a day. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus came. The doors being shut. Notice he didn't need to have the door open. All right. He, he, that's not an issue for him. And stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Remember the sword that was thrust into his side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. In verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have Believe. So what a wonderful account here of Thomas witnessing firsthand the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look and see what Thomas might instruct believers about learning, learning faith from doubting Thomas, I want to note three things that we can learn from Thomas's encounter. And the first in your listener's guide there, that first heading there, is number one. The first thing that Thomas teaches us is to remove your doubts. Remove your doubts. You can't get rid of something you don't acknowledge. Sometimes we're afraid to admit, Lord, I have doubts. I have questions. Uh, several months, maybe several years back, I don't remember but I did a message when the John the Baptist was in jail and he doubted and questioned and needed reassurance that Jesus was the Christ. Even John the Baptist witnessed, Thomas, a disciple, witnessed all the miracles and all those things and yet there were still questions that he had. And so the first thing, if we are going to have faith as the faithful and struggle and navigate through the lack of understanding or the lack or the presence of doubt in our life, regardless of what it is, we need to first of all remove our doubts. We can't have faith and distrust uh, inhabiting the same house. We struggle with doubt from various times. Notice what John writes about Thomas when he says that uh, when the disciples, verse 25, came to him, and they said, we've seen the Lord. Look at what he said. He said what? Unless I see. You see, he put a requirement for belief. Unless this happens, I'm not going to believe. Sometimes we do that. Unless I get everything just right in my life. Unless 
that happens, you know what? I'm not going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to have faith. Unless every Christian I meet or go to church with is perfect and is flawless and never offends me, unless I can find the perfect church, I'm not going to... Well, don't ever go to that perfect church because you'll mess it up. Unless, unless, unless. We put our requirements oftentimes on faith, don't we? One definition of faith, and you can put this down in your outline, one definition of faith is informed trust. It isn't faith in faith. It isn't faith in just nothingness. Sometimes we think of that. You've heard me talk about the little girl that was asked in her Sunday school class by her teacher, what is faith? And she says, oh, faith... Is, in, is believing in those things you know aren't true. No, 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 no. That's not faith, all right? That is not faith. Not, faith is not believing in things you know aren't true. That's not faith. Sometimes we'll, you know, we're in the, oh, we're in the polit- political season, and you'll hear somebody running, and sometimes they'll say, well, so-and-so's a man of faith. She's a woman of faith. Well, faith in what? That doesn't tell me anything. One scripture just related to this is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Remember, look at the, it says that faith is the substance. That's not nothingness. Faith has substance. Faith has content. Faith is the substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's not a faith in nothingness. That's a substantive faith. That's a content faith. We have faith in Christ. So, Faith is an informed trust, but just having information alone is not sufficient, is it? If you, uh, those of you that know your Bibles, you know that in Romans chapter 1, Paul the Apostle, as he's talking about the depravity of, of humanity, the sinfulness, and he talks about how the, uh, the Creator God can be known by the things that are made. But there's a limitation. That's where he says the verse, he says, so all men are without excuse to say, well, I didn't know God existed. And he makes the argument that you can look at the creative order, see the orderliness of creation, of of everything that God has made, just like if you stumbled upon a, a Rolex watch Uh, in the middle of the street, you wouldn't assume that, oh my goodness, it's raining Rolex watches. These just appeared out of nowhere. No, you're looking at a timepiece that is intricately crafted. We live in an earth that is intricately crafted by God. It's irrational to look at the world around us and say, all of this just happened. There had to be a master designer. But Paul's argument, and I think argument with our point here about being an informed trust, is information alone is insufficient. We need a personal trust. It's a trust. Information, but it's an informed trust. Faith and trust uh, can be used synonymously. We talk about faith, have faith, have trust in God. Trust God I know some people that have an uninformed trust in the wrong things. And I know other people that have lots of information, 
but they never do anything with that information. There's a lot of people that claim to be believers, but they have never really trusted in the faith that they possess. Faith is informed trust, and Thomas had to learn that to remove his doubts. But something else I would say that contributes towards this doubt, towards this, this uh, malaise of, in our Christian life where we begin to feel separated and question, and, and unless something happens, I won't believe. I think there's something also telling in verse 24 about this narrative of Thomas is that what often happens that we do is when we're struggling with doubt is that we withdraw ourselves from the very resources that God has given us to strengthen our faith. What did he do? It says, now Thomas called the twin, he was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. One of the worst things that you and I can do is when we're struggling as believers, struggling to have faith, struggling to trust, struggling to believe, that we withdraw ourselves into our own little uh, cocoon and not avail ourselves from the body that God has given us. That's always, as a pastor, you can always spot it when people are struggling. Instead of persevering and, and knowing that I need to be around other believers, I need the strength of like-minded people that are going to encourage me, that are going to lift my arms when they're falling down, when I'm, when I'm literally falling down. I need somebody to come alongside and to, to strengthen me and hold me. I need that. I can't do it by myself. But oftentimes, what is our strategy uh, that we do is we just start, we'll miss a Sunday, miss a couple of Sundays. We won't return an email, return a call. We're just kind of withdrawing. Maybe we're not mad at the pastor, we're not mad at anybody, but we just kind of begin to isolate ourselves thinking that that is going to remedy and strengthen our faith. Well, let me tell you, it will not. It will not. It will make it worse. So if you don't want to remove your, your doubts, don't remove yourself from the fellowship of believers in the church. Get in the habit of being faithful in your attendance, okay? And again, it's not attendance because, you know, I make more money by more people here. Listen, I'm going to preach to two. Uh, if, my, if it's just my wife here, right? Uh, but why? Because, listen, we need each other. God has designed. You read the New Testament, and you can't do what God instructs us in the New Testament, the one and others, you can't do that by yourself. We need the body. It isn't just coming to check off the box as I always go on Sunday. No, it's coming and being a part and developing relationships in your, your bulletin. And on the slide, you'll see the, these three C's that we use. There's nothing inspired about it, just a way to simplify what we some things that we believe that it's important to celebrate as a Christian, as a part. Somebody says, well, what does it mean to be a part of Grace Church? Well, come on Sundays. Help us celebrate Jesus together. That's part of it. But the second one is connect. Connecting one to another. You can't connect staring at the back of somebody's head. That's the reason that we have small groups and we're growing in that. That's the reason we have a Wednesday night Bible study and things for 
different ages. Again, we don't have everything, but we have things in place that if you, if you want to be connected, you can get connected. And if you don't, that's your choice too. Thomas did not help him in his doubts by just, and again, remember, let's be fair. Why are those disciples got the doors locked and got the ADT code on? Why, why is that all happening? Because they're in fear. They're discouraged. Mary went to the tomb expecting to see a dead corpse. Thomas, probably like Peter when he just went back fishing and figured, it's all over with. I might as well go back to the business. We don't know what's going on in Thomas's life, to be fair. But whatever it was, he was not there with the rest of them. And guess what? He already, and you can find other passages in the New Testament, that Thomas had a little bit of a pessimism about him. I don't have the reverence. You can look for it uh, on your own. But there's one place when Jesus uh, tells his disciples... And I'm not sure if whether he said, I didn't look it up this morning, where he says either he's going to Jerusalem or he, they're, on, they're going back in ministry. And he tells them to come on. And Thomas says, well, we might as well go and die too. That's what Thomas said. In other words, well, we might as well go with him and get killed with him. I mean, there was kind of already that predisposition in Thomas's life. So remove your doubts. Notice secondly, learning... Learning faith from doubting Thomas. Secondly is redirect your will. Now keep in mind, Thomas is a believer. I'm talking to believers. Believers, we have a renewed, redeemed will that is strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers, sometimes we use the term, well, everybody has a free will. But that's biblically not correct. The Bible does not speak about unbelievers having a free will. It speaks about their will being dead in bondage. They are predisposed to always make wrong choices. We get true freedom of the will when we are regenerated and empowered and renewed and born again by the Holy Spirit. Then we have the ability to have the, the Holy Spirit in us, guiding us into making right choices and right decisions. As an unbeliever, apart from the work and the regenerating power of the Lord Jesus Christ, it speaks about being dead in sin. That's what Romans 3 says. Dead people don't, they don't have any freedom. And you can picture it this way. If you want to figure that the unbeliever is in bondage or in a, in a spiritual jail, that man who's in that jail cell has lots of freedom, but he can't leave those four little walls. He has freedom, but he's always going to be limited in the sinfulness of his choices because he is not born again. That's why you must be born again. Jesus said that in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you're, you're, you can't even see the work of God, John 3, 3. And so when we talk about redirect your will, I'm talking about believers, believers. We're not talking about an unbeliever gaining faith. We're talking about believers strengthening and overcoming doubts. You know, lots of ways that sometimes doubt can come upon us. Sometimes, maybe this has happened to you, maybe it's not. Kind of a sudden doubt. You ever just sometimes just out of the blue, and I think it's certainly a, a satanic uh, influence that's trying to discourage us, but just out of the blue, you'll have this thought. What if it's not true? What if it's not true? 
What if I die? And it's not true. It's, what, if, what if all this that I've been doing and all this that I believe, and you, you start going through your mind, and, and you begin to get, and that's just kind of that sudden rush of, and you're like, where did that come from? Well, I can tell you where it came from. It came from the, what the Bible declares as your adversary, who's always trying to attack your mind, put on the mind of Christ, put on the armor of Christ. And so sometimes we get those sudden bursts of, of doubt, and we need to throw it out like the trash that it is, those thoughts. Take dominion over your mind. Take every thought captive, the Bible says. You with me? All right. Sometimes there's doubts that come into our lives, and this is where most of it uh, affects us, is through circumstances. Doubts come into our lives because of circumstances, maybe relationships or disappointments, uh, doubts, especially with a disappointment where we are just discouraged because at this juncture of life, wherever we're at, we're disappointed because things have not gone or worked out the way that I thought they would. My children, my spouse, whoever, hasn't, it hasn't gone the way that I wanted it to. And I have this disappointment this, this of expectations. And sometimes the flood of, of doubt and disbelief can come into us. That sometimes lasts a little longer. There's two important statements one by Thomas and one by Jesus. In verse 25, Thomas says, when they said, uh, verse 25, that we, we've seen the Lord, and he said, unless I see in his hands the print, put my finger in his print of the nails, put my hand in his side, notice what he says, I will, say will, I will not believe. I won't do it. Did you see what he's saying there? That's a, that's a statement of the will. That he's making a statement that he says, I don't care what you say. Peter, Bartholomew, I don't care. I will not believe unless I know and I can touch it and do it firsthand. I won't. I've made up my mind. I'm not going to do it. It's interesting. Some... People are much smarter than me that understand these things. A commentary said that in the Greek, the language is called a double negative. It could read like this. It's not good English, but it just gives the, the force of what Thomas is saying when he says, when he says, I will not believe, it really is literally almost like this. I positively will not believe. I double dog dare you, I won't believe. I mean, you know, now that's not in the Greek. I made that up. But, but what he's saying is, I've decided I'm not going to do it. I will not do it. You see, some, of, some folks are waiting. They're waiting for their mind to inform them or their emotions to lead them into a kind of faith in God that they see other people have. They're, 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 just, they're waiting for some Holy Ghost zap to happen to them when what they are needing to do is to make a decision of their will to say, I will believe. I will exercise faith. Statement in your listener's guide about faith 
Faith or trust, or faith rather, is corresponding action to informed trust. Okay, it's not on the screen, it's in the bullet or in your handout. Faith, real faith, is followed by corresponding action. It isn't just saying, I'm informed, but that informed has informed my will to respond to informed trust. And you know what I found? I found that when I follow trust with action, my emotions oftentimes catch up. Here's a little... Here's a little experiment. How many of you tomorrow, don't raise your hands, you're going to feel like going to work. You're just going to feel like it with joy and excitement. And, or some of you in school. You're just going to get up and you feel excited. But you know what you do? You get up. You get dressed. Hopefully you take a shower. You brush your teeth. You get dressed. What are you doing? Your will. And you know, you get there and you have that first cup of coffee and talk about what you did over the and after a while you're you're good. You're ready to go. What happened? Is you you willed. We say, well, you know, I, I don't feel this. I don't feel that. You know what? Listen, I am convinced of one thing, and that comes with pastoring and just life. People, 99% of the time, do what they really want to do. If you want to be here, you'll be here. If you don't, you won't. You got other things that are more. You, again, if you want to pay your bills on time, you will pay your bills on time. I mean, we do what's important to us. And if we have a desire to be strengthened in faith, we're going to, as believers, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, we're going to will to trust. We're going to have that faith with corresponding action that's going to follow that's going to believe our feet and our hands sometimes have to act and let our heart and our mind catch up to it. If you know and understand whether you call it tithing or faithful giving, oftentimes you may not feel like being faithful in your giving. And a small percentage of this church actually do that. But that tells me one or two things. That tells me you don't understand what the Bible teaches about your role as a steward in God's house. Or you've just willed to say, you know what, I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for that loving feeling to motivate me to give. But you know, sometimes what happens, and I'm telling you this as a pastor, when I give, and I do give, I want to give more. But when I give, you know what, oftentimes I'm, I'm... I'm not feeling it, but I know I better get that. I know I better go online and get that giving, write that check, get it in that box. I know I got to act on it quickly because if I wait to start rationalizing, listen, I got a lot of ways that that money set aside as a steward, whether it's you call it a tithe or your grace giving, 
I got, I got needs too. I got things to do too. But you know what? I get my will to make action. And guess what? There's something blessing. There's a blessing in knowing. Not because I'm trying to earn God's favor. Not try, I'm not trying to get to get. No. I'm just saying when I respond and have action. And have corresponding action to what I believe as is true, is a true principle for me as a believer. If I'm just waiting till I can afford to give, if I'm just waiting till when I feel like it, guess what? That'll probably never happen. There's a lot of things we do by sheer raw act of the will, and then the blessing of God in our life follow and act on it. You may not feel like sometimes forgiving somebody. Being nice to somebody who's not been nice to you. But you begin to do it. And here's a little secret of somebody that you're struggling with those areas. You begin to pray for them. I mean pray for them. Not praying hailstones fall on their house. I mean, no, you pray. You know how you pray? R.T. Kendall teaches us. You pray for God's blessing on their life. You pray for God's blessing. And you, you may do it through grit teeth. But guess what? I'm telling you this. You begin to do that and be faithful to it. You begin to show corresponding action to inform trust. Guess what? Your heart and your mind and your spirit will catch up if you make the action there. You hear what I'm saying? That's free. That's just pastoral advice. You don't get charged for that this week, all right? Look, look at something there, and I have it in the NIV in verse 26 and 27. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. This again is, and though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. And I like the way the NIV reads, stop doubting and believe. Stop it. There's a funny little episode, now I'm dating myself, when I talk about the Bob Newhart show. I'm not talking about the one where he's in the country inn and all. I'm talking about the one before that where he played the psychiatrist in Chicago. Remember that? And there's a funny scene, you can go on YouTube, all right, all right, it's not TV land, all right, let's hold on. All right, so <laughs> there's an episode in that old Newhart episode, you know, he plays a psychiatrist in Chicago, and you can go on YouTube find this because it's pretty funny, and he's got somebody meeting with him that has an appointment with him, and they're going through this litany of some problem they have in their life, and he's just kind of sitting there listening. And then finally they finish, and they said, what, what should I do? And Newhart just kind of sits there and says, well, uh, stop it. Like, what? Stop it. What are you talking? I mean, what, and he goes, just stop doing it. And it's funny because of the simplicity of just stop doubting and believe. Just stop it. I mean, we have 
And again, I'm not in any way minimizing legitimate categories for struggles and issues. But listen, we have an entire culture that's got a name for every issue of, pers- of a person's life. Just stop it. Why are you fearful? Just stop it. Quit being so fearful. Your fear is showing you don't really trust God. You're more consumed about what could, what should, what might. Who, who do you, And you're a believer. Stop that. Stop it. Stop doubting and believe. I love the simplicity of the way the NIV has it there, the way Jesus said this. Look. We're either moving as believers, talking to believers, we're either moving of growing faith to faith every day, or we're growing backwards of doubt and doubt and doubt. And at some point, the Holy Spirit may just tell us, stop it, stop it, stop it, and believe. Look. I know there's valleys, there's speed bumps on this journey. But I believe the Bible's clear that if I'm walking in faith, walking and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, I'll sense and know that the Spirit that Jesus says has come to be my helper, my helper, my comforter, is leading me in that presence of walking with Him and strengthening in Him. But notice and don't, this is my point to underline this. This isn't just autopilot Christianity. This is an act of the will. This is a, this is a, this is a quality choice decision that a believer needs to make. When it says love your wives men as Christ loved the church. He didn't say if you feel like it. He said just do it. Just do it. Make a choice of the will. But there's a third thing. That if I'm going to overcome the doubt in my life as Thomas did, I need to have, I need to see my, I renew, I need to renew my confession of faith. Renew my confession of faith. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to Jesus, as he touched his hand, his side, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. It's a great confession. Peter had a great confession in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they all chimed in and Peter what did he do he hit it out of the park you are the Christ you're the Messiah the son of the living God that was a confession and that's why Jesus went on to say based upon that confession upon the rock upon this rock the rock of my confession not Peter you're the first pope no upon that confession I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. It was that rock solid confession of the identity of Christ. When we think of confession, some of you, based on your background, you may think of a little booth in a church where you go to and you say and confess your faults, your sins, and somebody's there to 
absolve you of that and to provide forgiveness. That's not what we're talking about here. We talk about confession. You may think on a whole other extreme, and I hope this isn't the case. You may think of a confession sitting in a small little room down at the Polk County Sheriff's Department and confessing to a crime. We're not talking about that kind of confession either. But what we're saying is this is a this, a, this is a confession that is a positive confession where we speak truth about someone or something. It's a positive confession where we say truth about someone or something. Paul, or Paul, Thomas said in this confession, my Lord and my God. Look at the breakdown, and you see this in your hand out there, of just these uh, five words in, in this confessional statement, and each word I've kind of taken to make an emphasis on, when he says, my, that's personal. He's not saying that he's relying on somebody else's faith. Somebody said that God has no grandchildren. You're not, you're not in the kingdom or can't be in the kingdom of God born again because your granddaddy was a Baptist preacher. You personally need to come to faith in Christ. Secondly, he says, Lord. Lord. There was a time when Thomas thought of Jesus as his teacher, his rabbi. But now he's acknowledging him as Lord. We might say it that Jesus Christ, you're my CEO. You're leading my life. You're in charge of my life. The third little word, and... It's a little short word, but notice what it connects. It connects two twin truths to each other. As though one is not adequate without the other. My Lord and, he says, my God. The fourth one, he says, my again. Just kind of a one thing in Scripture. Anytime Scripture has repetition, it's there for emphasis. This is personal. No one can have faith for you. It must be personal. And then the last confession, he says, my Lord and my what? God. He says, you're not just the teacher. You're not just the Messiah that we were pinning our political hopes on. You are God. You are the creator. You're the master. You're the one who made me. Everything operates by your will. You are God. I remember one time talking to a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in what we would refer to as the deity of Jesus. They do not believe that Jesus is who the Bible teaches him, to, that he is, in his own words, that he is God, a very God. They believe that he is someone who has been created by God, a little lower than God, a little more than an angel, but certainly not God. And one time in talking with them, I turn to that passage and say, now, I'm curious. I wasn't trying to be ugly or argumentative. Well, maybe a little argumentative, but all right. But I was just making the point for them because, again, anytime I have those opportunities, uh, I want to take them because I pray that truth will sow seeds of doubt in their falsehood and the Holy Spirit can use that. And I said, now, how do you deal with this? Because here's the problem. Thomas clearly said my Lord and my God to Jesus that you say is not God. So we got a problem there. Jesus, according to your teaching of the watchtower, 
then Jesus was a blasphemer because he received worship as God. He didn't rebuke Thomas. So according to your logic, he should have rebuked Thomas and say, Thomas, no, 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 no. Don't say that. But what did Jesus do? He received it. Why? Because it's true. And I said, what do y'all do with that? And I've said this before. This is exactly what they said. They said, well, he wasn't saying my Lord and acknowledging me as God. It was just kind of he was so excited. He was kind of like, oh, my God. I'm like, really? That's the best you got? No. My Lord. My God. Thomas, confession. And here in your uh, hand out there, Thomas knew this. I find God in Jesus Christ. You don't find God. You might find God's handiwork in little kittens, but you're not going to find God in kittens. You'll see his creative power. You're not going to find God staring at the trees and the moon and the stars. You'll see the handiwork of God. But you want to find God? You see, the apostles understood this message in Acts chapter 4 when they said there is one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. In our pluralistic culture and society, it recoils out of anything that, that in any way is exclusive. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus was not politically correct. He said, and the Bible teaches consistently, that he exclusively is the singular, exclusive way to know God through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. That's it. And the choice is, do I believe it or do I don't believe it? A lot of people, it's the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for God in all the wrong places. St. Augustine, famous statement, says about how it's only in our need for God to come into our life Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, Thomas was able to find in Jesus Christ God in human flesh. When we talk about the term, the incarnation, that's what that means, incarnation. You know, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and says later in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, God in flesh, God in humanity, in Jesus Christ. Confessions are important. Somebody better get that. Might be important. Today, we're going to receive the elements of the Lord's table. And the reason it's important, maybe check your phones in case you haven't done that. One thing that's important is this confession. Confessions are important. 
Confessions are important. Paul wrote in Romans 10. He says in Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth. Or if you declare with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart. That God raised Jesus from the dead. You will be saved. If you confess. If you speak truth. It isn't just again. I've always been a Christian. Sometimes on handouts for new members, I might say, when did you become a Christian? And sometimes, and again, we, we kind of explore this, and, and I'm sure they, and I know they don't necessarily mean it this way, but sometimes initial is, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, you haven't. You weren't born a Christian. You were not born a Christian. There was a point in time, or should have been a point in time, Maybe you were six, maybe you were 16, maybe you were 60. But there was a point in time that you crossed the line into faith by acknowledging with your mouth that Jesus, you are Lord. You are who you say you are. And that by confessing or declaring with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, you take the information, you connect it with Faith and trust that God raised Jesus from the dead. And it says you will be saved. But it's predisposed on what your confession is. We believe with our hearts, verse 10. And so are made right with God. And we declare with our mouths that we believe. And so we are saved. 